You're listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast, where we speak with founders, CEOs, investors, advisors, experts, and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines. Brought to you by Psychedelic Invest, bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest podcast. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Dustin Robinson. He is managing principal at Eater Investments. We're going to talk to him about the world of investing in psychedelics uh, and really kind of where we are as an industry, where we are as uh, these companies, and the really kind of the facets that are going on in psychedelics in terms of what these companies need, what they're working on, capital requirements, uh, who's investing in these areas, and really just kind of understanding the landscape and what are the dynamics and what's going on right now. There's been a lot of changes or there's been a lot of activity obviously in the investment community and particularly in kind of some of the cutting edge industries of which psychedelics is a key one. So with all that, Dustin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Before we dive into the world of investing in psychedelics, let's get a little bit of background on you and kind of how you got into the space. How did you get into investing? What was the kind of path that you were on to get you to psychedelics? Give us the backstory. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, probably have a little bit different of a path than than most people in the industry. I my, my background is I'm an attorney, also a licensed CPA. Uh, prior to law school, I worked at Deloitte for a bit. After law school, I worked at Holland and Knight, so kind of did the big accounting, big law thing for the beginning years of my career, and then left Holland and Knight to help run a multi-state manufacturing company that we were able to grow to about 50 million in revenue. I sold out my interest in that several years ago and kind of just stumbled into the cannabis space. I was taking some time off and I had some friends that needed help structuring a cannabis transaction. At the time I had no background in cannabis, but I knew how to structure those types of deals from you know some of the work I'd been doing at Holland and Knight as well as my, my manufacturing company. So dove into the deals, it turned out to be way more complex than I expected it to be <laughs> yeah. because it was cannabis and uh, really was just intrigued by the complexity of putting together a cannabis deal. So I ended up getting another referral after that. And before I knew it, I was just getting a lot of referrals around doing complex commercial transactions within the cannabis space. So I, I I decided I had to start a law firm since I was getting those referrals. So I started my law firm. And uh, in 2018, I, I read the book, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Um, yeah. At the time, I had never tried a psychedelic compound. So yeah. it, uh, you know, many of my friends in college think it's kind of interesting that I'm the person so involved in this space. <laughs> but back in 2018, I knew virtually nothing about psychedelics other than the, the stigma and the false constructs that society had created around me, around psychedelics. And so read that book. Uh, and then surprisingly, several doctors I represent at my law firm started reaching out about three years ago about getting involved in psychedelics. They started sharing the research and I was just blown away by what I was reading. The You know, I'd read the book and, and then they were sending me this research from Imperial College, 
Yale University, Johns Hopkins, and it looked really interesting. So I started off just really representing doctors in the space, whether it be starting ketamine clinics, starting mm-hmm. telehealth ketamine clinics, or, or collaborations with other research institutions, and then ultimately started deploying my own capital. I had investors reaching out to help with diligence, started working with investors on you know co-investing with them into deals. And then met my partner, Robert Velarde, who's had a long career in investing. And he uh, met him over two years ago. And uh, that's when we decided that we were going to partner up and put together a venture capital fund. And we, we officially launched a fund in April of 2021. So it's been a little over a year. We just closed our first fund just a, about a month ago. So very excited about that. I currently have 16 companies in the portfolio and we're actively deploying capital into the industry. So excited about what the industry has to offer and uh, just very humbled and honored to play my role in moving this research forward. Yeah. I'm curious, just coming out of the cannabis space, what have you noticed? I mean, you mentioned that cannabis was complicated, right? And, and a lot of people you know, don't know what they're getting into until they're into it and then they have to figure it out. But I'm curious, what were you able to kind of transfer in terms of what you learned about kind of working in this kind of area that's a little complicated from a legal point of view, from a regulatory point of view, in cannabis space, in terms of psychedelics, where were the similarities? Where were the differences? What surprised you? Give us a little sense of the the dynamics of the industry from kind of the deal-making side. Yeah, there, there are certainly similarities. There's probably more differences, though. That's one thing I talk a lot about. The similarities is that they're both Schedule One substances, right? So whenever you're dealing with Schedule One substances on the CSA, the Controlled Substances Act, you're going to be dealing with a lot of regulations and complications. But really, you know, I started a nonprofit in 2019 focused on legal reform around psychedelics. And Mm -hmm. and that's really focused at a city and state level. And when you're dealing with the legal reform at a city and state level, there's actually a lot of overlap with respect to cannabis, just because it's, it's states trying to pass legal frameworks that are federally illegal. So you have the issues with banking, payment processing, insurance, all this the same stuff that you have with cannabis. My investment fund, however, is really mainly focused on the biotech side of the psychedelic space. And that looks extremely different from cannabis. Really, these are companies that are taking psychedelic compounds or psychedelic inspired new chemical entities through the proper federal channels, whether it be the FDA in the US or Health Canada in in Canada or so on and so forth. It's in, you know, we invest internationally. So, you know, we're investing in companies that are going through various different regulatory frameworks. But the important thing is that they're they're taking the approach of getting these approved as a pharmaceutical compound, right? So that's much different than what you're seeing in the in the cannabis space, at least with respect to like the state sanctioned programs for cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, really, we're, we're really looking at like clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three, getting approval and then delivering these compounds as pharmaceutical drugs. But, but regardless of where you're operating, whether it's with the FDA or with the state, you still have to deal with the stigma. So that's something that's certainly very, very similar with respect to cannabis and psychedelics is both of them have a very long history 
of just false information really being spread and really started in the 1970s yeah. with the Controlled yeah. Substances Act and the, and the war on drugs. So, yeah, that's a, a little bit of an overview of some of the similarities and differences. Yeah. yeah, it does seem like cannabis seems to have been sort of driven or at least the last five years anyway, really kind of driven by recreational use, adult use, recreational use. And I just don't see that same kind of dynamic on the psychedelic side. I mean, I'm curious why you think that is the case or I mean, it, just, it feels like right now on the psychedelic side, it's much more, you know, around kind of drug development, therapeutic models and not this more kind of recreational personal use side. Yeah, you know, I look at, you know, this whole recreational versus medical, it's really on a spectrum, you're never using something, in my opinion, fully recreational, right? We're all we're all looking yeah. for something when we're taking it, whether it be yeah. it's it's Friday night, and I need to relax. Obviously, that's not you curing a mental health indication or another indication. But, you know, you're trying to take the edge off, you're trying to relax, maybe you know, you're trying to ease pain, whatever it might be. So in some respects, I think almost all use with cannabis is somewhat therapeutic. Yeah. Um, of course, there are people also that abuse those compounds as well as people yep. that abuse psychedelics. But really, what I say is the big distinguishing factor when you're talking about investing in cannabis versus psychedelics is that when I when all the dust settles, in the cannabis space, I believe, you know, when we're looking 10 years from now, I think this is going to be 80 to 90% a recreational adult use market, right? The medical framework that states pass was really just a pretext yeah. to get recreational. Like once a state passes medical, the next step is getting to recreational. I think when all the dust settles, that's what we're going to be looking at with the cannabis space. In contrast, the psychedelic space, in my opinion, is mainly driven by the pharmaceutical use. And the reason for that is the research. These compounds are very powerful. I think cannabis has tremendous potential. It affects everyone very differently. Um, they're kind of tough. You know, cannabis is a tough yeah. compound to use as like a, a drug just because everyone's endocannabinoid system is different. They react differently. Very hard to kind of standardize results. Whereas with psychedelic compounds, they're extremely, extremely powerful what they do to the brain, the, the neuroplasticity, the neurogenesis, the building of dendrites in the brain. It really allows for people to reprocess things in a totally different manner, whether it be trauma you had to deal with or, or other issues that you're dealing with from a mental or behavioral health perspective. It really helps you reprocess those things. And each of the compounds obviously work differently on the brain, for example, like MDMA turns down the amygdala, which is responsible for fear and emotion. So for people with PTSD, you know, they have trouble dealing with whatever that traumatic moment is and their amygdala is fired up. The M MDMA al allows the amygdala to be turned down. And at the same time, it also brings up memories that are sometimes suppressed. So you're able to deal with those memories from a place of love as opposed to a place of fear and emotion. And as a result, you get the healing effects of what we're seeing in the phase three clinical trials with MDMA for PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it does seem there's just kind of a structural issue of the fact that cannabis being kind of a plant-based substance that ends up having all these cannabinoids and flavonoids and terpenes. Like it's a, it's a fairly complicated concoction that you end up with cannabis. And then trying to do any kind of real research becomes problematic because it's like, you can't, I mean, you can isolate, you know, various molecules, but then, you know, do they really work the same in isolation? Like it's it just, it, it feels like it's destined to be 
not well suited or designed for a clinical trial and kind of a more drug model kind of development versus psychedelics more or less are single molecules, right? We're, we're dealing with compounds that are very isolated or easy to isolate and have the impact efficacy that we're looking for. And you can kind of put them through kind of these trials. You can follow the, the FDA model. How does that change the investment point of view? Like if you, you know, given the people that have been, been investing in cannabis versus people that are now investing in psychedelics, do you see a different nature of investor, a different model for the investment, how people are evaluating investments? What, what's the dynamic there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, we definitely see overlap with cannabis investors and psychedelic investors. I think that's mainly driven by the fact that, you know, cannabis in investors are, number one, they're comfortable with emerging industries. So they're looking for those emerging spaces. Uh, and that's what psychedelics is, just like cannabis. And then number two, they usually are kind of a part of a demographic that doesn't hold tight to stigmas. So as a result, you know, those people that invested in cannabis wanting to get into an emerging market and being willing to ignore some of the false social constructs, those same qualities apply into the psychedelic space. So you see quite a bit of overlap there uh, with respect to the investor base. Yeah. And what what are the nature of the investments? I mean, I, I know, you know, cannabis, it was or it still is at some extent, you know, I'm going to put up a dispensary. I'm going to put up a lab. I'm going to do a processor. Right. I'm going to start a cultivation. Right. They're they're fairly I can kind of put together the business plan. I kind of know what the revenue model is going to be. I know what my capital requirements are. I can kind of figure out like what am I going to need to raise and I can put it to use pretty quickly and I can start making money, you know, within 12, 24 months. That, that doesn't seem to be the case in psychedelics. I mean, what what are people raising money for? Who like how much? What's the kind of model? Like how? Give us a sense of how it's the investment world for psychedelics is playing out at this point. Yeah, so we 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 kind of lump everything into four different buckets. So the first bucket is drug development and drug discovery. Those are companies that are taking these compounds through drug approval, whether it be with the FDA or Health Canada or whatever jurisdiction they're in. The second bucket is the companies that are supplying those active pharmaceutical ingredients, the APIs. Most of those companies are coming out of Canada because of some of the changes in law out there. So that second bucket, they are the ones supplying those APIs to the drug development companies in that second bucket, in the first bucket. And then the third, the third bucket is the clinics that will be delivering this medicine. So right now, the clinical trials that are going on with the drug developers are being approved under what's called REMS, Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy, that essentially require them to be delivered at a clinic. And so, you know, the current paradigm with pharmaceuticals for mental health is you you get a prescription, you go to your pharmacy, you get that prescription filled and you you take your SSRI or your benzo at home. Under this new paradigm with psychedelics, you actually have to go into a clinic where it is administered. So that clinical infrastructure is pretty new and it's being built out as we speak. So that's the third bucket. And then the fourth bucket is really kind of a catch-all bucket, which is really the technology and other supporting infrastructure. And that's actually a bucket that we originally didn't think would be we'd be as attracted to, but we're starting to weigh our portfolio pretty heavily into that fourth bucket. There's a lot of exciting new digital therapeutics and technologies around the psychedelic space that we're moving forward and investing in that have tremendous potential. Yeah. I'm curious how you kind of 
categorize or bucket the psychedelics themselves because you know cannabis is kind of easy like we've got cannabis plant and yes you have different strains you've got hemp and things like that but it's all pretty much cannabis in psychedelics we, we're talking about you know some things that are plant-based like psilocybin being you know kind of plant-based material you've got some that are animal-based you've got some that are purely lab constructed do you have any kind of categorizations of either the you know, the source of the compounds or the compounds themselves? Because in, in some case, we're dealing with true psychedelics. In other case, we're really dealing with like disassociatives and things like you. I guess, how do you kind of organize this this world that we're putting under the category of psychedelics? Yeah, so we, we have there's two separate types of categorizing we do with the compound. So the first is really we have kind of the first generation psychedelic compounds, which are MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, all the traditional psychedelic compounds you know about. The mm -hmm. second generation of psychedelic compounds are, are kind of just analogs or variations of those compounds. So for example, psilocybin takes six to eight hours your, your trip. Um, there's mm -hmm. companies that are developing analogs to reduce the time of that trip to you know one to, to two hours. And then the third generation is just completely new chemical entities. A lot of people don't realize LSD and MDMA were made in a lab, right? Yeah, At exactly. one point they were yeah. they were two they, you know, right now they're considered, you know, traditional psychedelic medicines, but once upon a time LSD and MDMA were just new chemical entities created in a lab. And there is an explosion of companies that are racing to develop these new chemical entities that hit the kind of receptors that they want to hit and don't hit other receptors. So those are kind of like from a compound perspective, we categorize them into first generation, second generation, and third generation. And then what we also do is we've matched various compounds with different indications that we want to address. So for example, we have a strong conviction around ibogaine uh, for addiction. Uh, it has a very long history, a lot of very strong research. There are some different safety aspects related to ibogaine that need to be addressed. And, and we're actually our, our very next investment. I can't say who it is or what it's going to be because <laughs> we haven't finalized it yet, but our next investment's actually going to be in a company that is doing ibogaine for addiction. So, you know, it's not just picking a compound and closing your eyes and picking an indication, you know, different compounds we believe will be very suitable for different indications. Like I mentioned, MDMA, we think is really very strong for anything that's trauma-based, mainly PTSD. And that's why you're seeing, we invested in a MAPS SPV. So we have a rev share for the commercialization of MDMA once it's approved. The reason we did that is we feel very, very strong, high conviction around MDMA for PTSD. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about some of the other indications, right? Because I think whereas, you know, in cannabis, there's, yeah, I mean, we're identifying, you know, some areas that it can apply and reduce anxiety and some pain management and things like in, in psychedelics, we're, we're talking about targeting very, very specific conditions and, and various serious conditions that have been sort of poorly treated by traditional pharmaceuticals. Like what are the ones, I guess, where do you see investors or companies focusing on in terms of these indications and which ones are most exciting for you? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing to understand is that the mental health and behavioral health space has been largely practically abandoned by the big pharma companies. So the SSRIs and the Benzos, the Zolofs and the Xanax, these compounds were developed like three decades ago. Yeah. People don't realize that. In the 80s and 90s, these compounds were developed. And quite frankly, they, their efficacy is not great. They do have some efficacy and they do help some people, but it's not great. And they have horrible side effects, 
right? So, you know, everything from anxiety to depression, PTSD, treatment-resistant depression, major depressive disorder, all of those indications have been very much abandoned. And as a result, we have this mental health crisis. Over a billion people globally are suffering from some sort of mental health indication. I actually think that number is understated. I think it's actually much worse than that. So really, the whole slew of various mental health indications have been very largely underserved. But one particular area that we're interested in the behavioral health side is addiction. And and we've actually made several investments around addiction. We've invested in almost every compound around addiction. We want to have a lot of shots on goal. We think this is a huge, huge unmet need. The current addiction medications just are are not very efficacious and they do not have good side effects, have a high relapse rate. So we've invested in, in ketamine for addiction. We've invested in MDMA for addiction. Like I mentioned, we're about to invest in ibogaine for addiction. We also have an investment in psilocybin for alcohol use disorder. And so right now there, there's two reasons that we're, we're, we're big on addiction. Number one, huge unmet need. Number two, if you look back, it's a lot of the research that's been done on psychedelics for addiction, very, very, very strong. So when you have a situation where you have a high unmet need in a particular indication, and the early research is showing that all these different compounds are, are, are pretty much, you know, showing some efficacy around them, you know, that's an area that we want to look at and invest in. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you feel? I mean, why why are these so much more effective? I mean, uh, do you have I mean, what, what's your insight in terms of what psychedelics are kind of bringing to the table that that other kind of treatment modalities and and pharmaceuticals and things just haven't been able to do? Yeah, the current pharmaceuticals have really been focused on masking the symptoms. So, you know, they're good at like, you know, if you're depressed, it'll make you not feel depressed. But guess what? You got to take that pill every single day for the rest of your life. And you're probably going to have some bad side effects such as weight gain, sexual dysfunction, suicidal ideation. I mean, all sorts of different bad side effects with these compounds. So it really hasn't been focused on getting to the root cause. And what psychedelics are doing is they're really trying to get to the root cause. It's It's really creating a rewiring and a reboot for the brain and allowing people to have those new insights into, you know, what is causing this issue for them, whether it be trauma or whatever it might be, and allowing them to process it in a new way and gain a broader understanding and how to to deal with it and how to manage it. So I think that's the key to the current pharmaceutical approach with the, to, to, with the psychedelic approach. The current pharmaceutical approach, not really focused on the root cause. Psychedelics are really trying to get to that root cause. Yeah. And how I'm kind of curious your view on how you think this industry is going to play out because I I the potential for psychedelics to actually address some of these root causes certainly changes the dynamics of kind of therapy and you know kind of the business around treatment, right? Because I mean if if we're addressing things at root causes, <laughs> hopefully we're going to have situations where you don't have to be on these things for, you know, 5, 10 years and you know going be going to therapy every week and stuff. You know, and so for the pharmaceutical companies, you know, that's uh, not to kind of be tough on the pharmaceutical companies, but but they make money on treatments that 
are continuous, right? Like have an ongoing kind of need for treatment and pharmaceuticals and things like that. I guess, do you see, where do you see the pharmaceuticals kind of playing in this space? How are they, how are they seeing it? Who else is kind of interested in seeing these therapies developed? How are you seeing that side of it play out? Yeah, I think the first thing to note is like, I don't subscribe to the idea that just one macrodose fixes someone for, you know, hundreds of years, right? The, com <laughs> the compass, the compass research demonstrated that there is a lack of durability and I do think people yeah. will need tune-ups, whether it's every three months, every six months, whatever it might be. At the end of the day, doing something every three months or every six months is much better than doing something every single day of your yeah. life. So so I don't subscribe to that, except in, in certain indications. For example, with end-of-life patients, what some of the research is yeah. showing out of NYU is that when you're dealing with end-of-life, your issue and your depression is really around this idea of death and and just one macrodose of psilocybin in the NYU studies showed tremendous durability because it was able to help people view death in a different way and not fear it and understand that we're we're all one and we're all eternal and you know there's a different way of looking at death than just straight finality and so i think in certain conditions you know one macrodose could potentially work but realistically you're going to need multiple doses so the next question is you know these compounds right now the traditional ones mdma and psilocybin take six to eight hours and you're going to need two therapists in the room with you so that's going to be very challenging from a commercialization perspective there's going to yeah. be a huge bottleneck in getting therapists trained and and getting clinics that are capable that have the infrastructure to deliver these medicines in a quality way so that's going to be a challenge for the industry but this I mentioned the second generation and third generation compounds, and I think what I'm hopeful of is that I think psychedelics, beyond just providing a, a mental health solution, I think they're going to provide a lot more insight into the brain and how it works. And my hope is that these psychedelic analogs, the second generation compounds and the third generation compounds, will be able to shorten the duration, make the trips more consistent. In some instances, companies are actually looking to create new chemical entities that remove the trip from mm -hmm. the, the medicine. Yeah. So yeah. if you could imagine a psychedelic that's not psychedelic, there's still a lot of questions <laughs> around whether you could still get still the yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we don't know if you can still get the therapeutic benefits, but, you know, it's showing efficacy in rodents and in Petri dishes, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to show efficacy with humans. So you know, I think the, the this these traditional psychedelic compounds, it's going to be a long road for us to really show that the commercialization is viable. But I also think those will pave the way for developing new compounds and new delivery uh, methodologies that will be much more consistent with the current paradigm for delivering pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And in terms of the investors, like what are you noticing about who's investing in psychedelics? Like, what are they like? Why are they investing? What are the motivations? And if someone is out there interested in investing, like what is the stomach they need to have? You know, and what, what do they need to be prepared for? And, and what are the kind of the vehicles that most people are using these days? Yeah. So, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, we do see some flow over from cannabis investors, but we're also seeing a lot of impact investors. It's uh, it's amazing. You know, obviously we have a fund and, you know, we just closed our fund last month. And over the past year, I've talked to literally hundreds, if not thousands of, of individuals that are interested in investing in the space. And a lot of them are looking at this from an impact perspective, either themselves or someone else they know has been, you know, impacted 
through mental health and, and potentially also impacted on the benefits of psychedelics. And, you know, many people have had their own profound experience under psychedelics. So I think you're seeing, and by the way, a lot of those individuals are very high net worth individuals. You know, it's, it's yeah. amazing. I came into this industry three years ago, literally carrying the stigma that these are bad for you. You know, they are addictive, this, that, and the other. And it, it's amazing how almost all of my my assumptions were false. I mean, people, some of the most high performing individuals in this world attribute psychedelic medicines for helping them have that vision and that creativity. I think it was Steve Jobs that said LSD was one of the, the most profound things that he's done in his life. I mean, could yeah. you imagine a guy like Steve Jobs who literally has all the money in the world to do all sorts of unbelievable experiences said this was the profound most profound experience he's had in his life and helped him create the vision of, of what he's created so I, I think that like a lot of these high net worth individuals have been highly impacted by these compounds and we're seeing a lot of those investors get into the space now i, I do caution investors this is an emerging industry it's hard to pick the winners we do a tremendous amount of diligence when we invest into deals, but inevitably we are venture capital. Some of our investments will not work out. Yeah. And so you could certainly invest direct into deals. Um, but that's why we believe that investing into a venture capital fund is the right way to get exposure to the industry because we're building a diversified portfolio of companies that we've done heavy diligence on. Inevitably, some of those companies will not succeed. But our hope is that many of those companies could potentially develop blockbuster solutions for mental and behavioral health. Yeah. Dustin, there's been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about the investments, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah. So you could go on our website. It's eaterinvestments.com. That's I-T-E-R investments, plural.com, eaterinvestments.com. You're also welcome to email me at Dustin at eaterinvestments.com. That's D-U-S-T-I-N at eaterinvestments.com. Awesome. We'll make sure the links and information are in the show notes so people can get that. Dustin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Anytime. Appreciate it, Bruce. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. <laughs>